0: Hi, I'm Rob Dietz. I'm Asher Miller.
1: And I'm Jason Bradford. Welcome to Crazy Town, where human waste is our favorite renewable fuel.
2: Okay, guys, this is the final episode of the season of Crazy Town.
1: Finally. <laughs> Whew. And oh.
2: I I wanted to start by sharing a story, which is, maybe it's a little risky because it might bum you guys out. It might bum our listeners out, too, but... But I want to share it for a reason, which I'll get to. So you know, way back when, back in the day, last millennium
0: this is getting back.
2: Yeah. I, uh, I actually worked at a place called the Shoah Foundation, which was this project that was started by Steven Spielberg to document the stories of Holocaust survivors, and we were doing video uh, interviews with Holocaust survivors from around the world. It was an amazing job, yeah, really intense. You know, that was my like first job out of college. And I was working in the production department. And one of the jobs that I had was getting all of these, helping coordinate these interviews that were happening in all these places where we didn't have offices around the world. So, like, England was one of the countries I was working with. I was working in Brazil and Venezuela and Sweden and South Africa and places all over the world. And we would get our staff, you know, we had these volunteers in these countries and we had P.O. boxes there. And what we did when we reached out to interview people is we just had this like flyer that would be dropped off at like you know temples and other Jewish community centers in these diff- all these different countries around the world, and it was just a flyer that asked people to like fill in their information, and we would ask things like where were you born and you know what, what, what was the date of birth and um, what was your experience? Were you in any hall you know in any concentration camps and which ones were they? And then people would send them into the P.O. box. Well, because of security concerns, they would send all the mail to us in California, and we would open the mail, and then we'd send the information back to them. Back in those days, I was faxing a lot.
1: A wow. Lot of yeah.
2: So I was responsible for opening this mail and looking at these at these like little flyers with this little bit of information. And I got trained, eventually, to look for these patterns, right? And to realize some things, I wasn't a Holocaust historian, I didn't know any of this stuff, but I was surrounded by these brilliant people who could make these connections just based upon, like, this person was born in this town, around this date, and they went to this concentration camp. Oh, this is a really rare story. We really need to record this interview. Oh, right, okay? right. So this guy I worked with, this guy named Martin, who was this genius guy from, from Prague, he once told me about these, this group of boys called the Birkenau Boys. Okay, And the Birkenau boys were uh, basically boys that came from Czechoslovakia and were sent to Birkenau. Birkenau was the the largest death camp um, that the Germans ran. And they were pulled out and selected to uh, serve basically as runners for the Nazis in the camp. Um, And they were like teenage boys, 14 years old or so. And there had been this guy who we, was one of the very first interviews we ever did. His name was Helmut. And he told us a story about how basically he had gone up to Joseph Mengele, who's this infamous doctor. Some people some right, the, might right.
0: He was him. the guy that was selecting, you're going to work and you're going to the gas chamber. Yeah, and he
2: would also pull people out to do experiments <laughs> yeah. on them.
0: Okay. And Helmut said,
2: I went up to Mengele and I asked, you know, I asked him to save me. I could do something you know, to help. And he was so taken by my bravado, basically, that he laughed and he just decided to pick me. And then this other boy heard me do this and he ran up to me and he asked me to go up to him and and save his life as well. And so I did. I went back to Mengele and I asked him to save this boy as well. And Mengele couldn't believe the the balls on me, basically, you know, <laughs> that I would do this. And he just decided to pick a bunch of kids to save, to serve as messenger boys and runners or whatever. And Helmut had told us a story. And I got to be honest, there are sometimes we would hear stories that we just didn't believe. Uh And and sometimes it was because people honestly just wanted to convince themselves a story. In many cases, Holocaust survivors, other people who've gone through really horrible traumas, to survive, they did all kinds of things that they might not have done in, under normal conditions, right? So they sometimes people would change their their memories. Yeah, right, right. We right. thought Helmut he, was one of those guys.
0: Even the memory mechanism might fail under right. such circumstances. That's right. So we just thought – and he was a blustery kind
2: of guy, you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we just thought uh, – but it turns out that there were these boys, you know? And, and this guy Martin told me, if you see anybody who was about this age – and who came from Prague or came from, you know, came through Theresienstadt, which was this, like, other camp, flagged that. Because that might be one of these, you know, it turns out, 89 boys. Wow. And they had really important stories to share from interacting with, you know, the, the Nazis who were running these camps, you know. Yeah. And so one day I, I saw this flyer from England, this guy, and he had the right dates. You know, the, some of the information was right. But he didn't say anything about being a Birkenau boy. Didn't talk about any of that stuff. And I went to Martin. I was like, hey, is this maybe something important? He's like, yeah, maybe it is. So let's ask the interviewer who's going to interview him some questions to see if we can figure this out. Because we would always do a pre-interview questionnaire. And the guy had no memory of any of this stuff that we talked about, hmm. that we're asking about. And so we thought, maybe that's, there's nothing. But then in the course uh, you know, of the interview, he basically he blanked out huge chunks of his life story of what his experience was during the war. You know, his childhood before the war, he really lamented that he couldn't remember these things, but he did remember this one thing. And that was asking this other boy to save him because he had gone up to this, to a a Nazi. And when we heard that,
1: Oh my God. We're like, holy shit.
2: Like Helmut was right. Right. And this was, and this was the first one. Yeah. That instigated it, and and we we were like freaking out basically when we when we understood that this had happened, and so we actually reached out to Helmet and we said we think we found corroboration of your story, because none of the other boys that we had interviewed could corroborate what Helmet had said yeah, because they, weren't the first they didn't one. know why yeah. they had been picked right, and we wound up putting these two guys together. We asked permission. We asked them if they wanted to to be reconnected. And Helmut actually traveled to England to to visit this other guy. And when the guy saw him, all of his memories came back. Everything came back for him. That's almost movie-like. Yeah, and in fact, when we were trying to do some promotion in different countries, like a lot of uh, the reason why we got people to step forward to ask to be interviewed or to volunteer to be interviewed is because this was after Schindler's List came out. And we would try to get... Schindler's List played on national television in these Mm. countries as a way. And at the end, they would put these like a call out for Holocaust survivors. And so we would do all kinds of different things. And and at some point, I think we got contacted by the press. After Schindler's List ran, People Magazine asked us if there was a story to be told. And we told them this story. And the People Magazine in England actually ended up telling a story about these guys. But the reason I bring this whole thing up was because, you know, here we did this season talking about Hidden drivers, and and that's I was really thinking about that experience, both for me, my experience of being in a situation where I was able, I was getting all this information, all this data, and I was able to start seeing some patterns, mm. you know, and pursuing these things, and following my curiosity, and having resources to turn to to say, could this possibly be this? Um, that investigation. But also the, the experience of this Holocaust survivor who literally had no memory right. you know, at all. And this event of, of re-meeting
0: Helmut after 50 years brought it all back for him. And yeah. then did that change his life like was he seeing things differently after that yeah i mean, must I mean have it been, was right? yeah it was a c- completely cathartic could you imagine if
1: We're burying that somehow
2: yeah to, to open up all these things i mean it wasn't just his memory of his life like his experiences in the camps it was his childhood before <laughs> that yeah you know that he was 14 years old when he went into the camps you know yeah. he got all that back a lot of that's obviously very painful
0: but
1: right.
2: also probably lost invaluable. family like
1: all his family yeah, was lost exactly
0: um yeah! Uh, wow. Yeah, there, there's one other piece of this, which is you come by your uh, <laughs> this this ability you have to to cover difficult topics. Obviously, you got some training in that <laughs> early in your career.
2: Yeah, I guess I've always,
0: I don't know, maybe, and, and this
2: is something I, I'd be curious if if all of us and our listeners have this in common. For some reason, you know, life experience or what have you. I was a kind of person who felt like I needed to dig deeper, you yeah. know, behind things, and I was fortunate to be able to use that kind of sleuthing tendency in a situation that then ended up um, having an impact in the real world. Yeah. And I think that's the purpose of us wanting to talk about these hidden drivers this season, because if we don't recognize what's happening right. and what's driving these things, you know, I'm not saying. Once we know, now we could fix everything with the snap of the fingers.
1: But if we don't know... Yeah, what chance we have. What chance do we have? Yeah, sleuthing. I like that term.
0: Well, I want to get a little bit meta on our season because there's something hidden about the hidden drivers that uh, the three of us are aware of, but I'm not sure our listeners are aware of it. Um, I don't know that we've mentioned it, but it's how we explicitly planned to organize Mm -hmm. this season. And, you know, you're talking about a share when, when you understand drivers or hidden drivers, you know, maybe it opens up uh, in the case of your story, it opens up memory, which then opens up a a different way of thinking about your life. Well, uh, for us, we thought if you can become aware of these hidden drivers, yeah, maybe we can start to do something differently. But, You know, starting out with, hey, what are the hidden drivers that have pushed us into Crazy Town? That's a pretty tall order. So we did a little categorization and thought that might be a way to organize the season. So, uh, any listener who's put forth the Herculean effort of staying with us from episode to episode, maybe they'll realize the pattern, which was we kind of started with the small, we started with the individual human and human behavior and in our own psychology and what what are the hidden drivers there and from there we expanded out to kind of broader human behavior meaning our culture and our our social constructs that have pushed us into crazy town and then we got to this third piece which was things in the physical world that actually uh exist in the universe that's the way things work but because of that and because of the way people interact with it, those things push us into crazy town. So mm-hmm. maybe we could just do, I don't know, you guys, like a little recap of each of those those categories. And Yeah, uh, why don't you start us off? Yeah, well, uh, I, I like that because for me, it's sort of the simplest, which is at the individual level. So I'll leave the hard work to you guys. But we started the season. Actually, the very first episode was on cognitive biases. So if you're talking about human psychology... Uh, you know, you interviewed Peter Wybrow in that episode of share, and he was talking about essentially, I, I don't know if flaws is the right word, but ways that the human brain works that somehow uh can work against us in modern times.
1: But also they were an evolutionary context. So we have to make shortcuts to get by. So there's a there's like a logic to the thriftiness of yeah, it our makes, thinking.
2: Makes sense in some ways. Yeah. That what we you know we might think of as irrationality actually makes sense when you think about where it comes from. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And that, that's actually a thread that ran throughout the episodes that were focusing on our own psychology. So one one of my favorite episodes was terror management yeah. theory. Where we were looking at fear of death, anxiety about death, as influencing all kinds of behaviors, where you didn't recognize that that influence was even there. Like yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna discriminate against this out group that because was the, I'm afraid of death.
2: That was the most fascinating thing for me. Like I, I think if you say to people, "Hey, our fear of death has an impact on our lives," everyone would sort of agree with that. But but to but to look at these studies and realize that. The subtle ways that it actually could reinforce tribalism, sort of uh, in-group, out-group dynamics.
0: You know, like yeah. a, that's uh, really Violence, scary. belief in symbols. Yeah, yeah. Really, really powerful and important to recognize. Yeah, yeah. And there were there were plenty of others. Another one is is the idea of discounting the future. You know, sometimes you think, oh, maybe maybe that's a social construct. Like we talked about interest rates, for example, sure. and you know, the way financiers and economists think uh, in that episode. But some of that is just built into how humans experience time and how we think in the world, which, again, like you mentioned, Jason, uh, in an evolutionary perspective was an adaptive thing, but maybe in modern times is kind of screwing us over.
2: Yeah, and then, you know, on the social constructs side of things, and of course, these things all bleed into each other, right? I mean, we did this episode on self-domestication, which I, I find kind of an interesting one because it, it kind of helped create conditions for some of these other constructs that we that we have, like complexity and specialization. We talked about the rise of cities, you know, when we became agrarian societies, we developed cities and hierarchies and that that led to, you know. People have specialized roles, and and then complexity of society to the point where, like, if we have problems, we just double down on complexity to solve them. The myth of progress we talked about how important of a social construct that is, so much so that I think we don't even recognize that it's it's something that is like a belief system that just about all of us have have inherited. Um, talked about money. We we talked about how all this complexity and and technology has led to even more challenges with, like, our attention, being able to focus our attention on things that matter. Uh, yeah, I don't know if there were ones in there that really struck stuck with you guys or not.
0: Oh, definitely. Like, the idea of the myth of progress, it's almost hard to put that down as an episode because it's it almost puts us in a category of we're against progress, you know? And it, it that's not the case, but it's the notion that somehow we're preordained to make progress and that and how you define progress is really important yeah uh and and it's almost like i don't know it 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 feels like like we're already kind of putting ourselves on an island by being so against some of these systems that uh, make up our our culture but that one especially puts us on, puts us on a really. We're like Tom Hanks in a movie Cast Away. We're out on this island where we we ain't getting off, at least without the help of a good yeah, because, volleyball.
2: Because here's the thing: no one wants to think that their that their kids or grandkids are going to have a worse life than them, right? They want to believe. But that's only because we have a certain definition of progress. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think that's what we should we should kind of round out. Maybe there, you know, we'll get into what to do. Like a lot of are uh, do the opposite stuff. Um, we'll get into some of maybe how we deal with that. but you know, what we also did towards the end is we brought up some hidden drivers. These are terms and concepts that maybe you hadn't heard of before that are very important, like net energy, like the maximum power principle. And you know, some other ones that are really important would be like overshoot or just the concept of exponential growth. knowing how, key these are like these are these are these are laws of physics and and nature and i just wish that all of those were sort of etched in everyone's consciousness and at the forefront of our minds when we're making decisions but they're not and the reason they're not i sort of think back of like harken back to previous seasons where we talked about cultural materialism right um the marvin harris notion that we construct these ideas based upon our material conditions of the world so our ideas reflect the material conditions of our world and what we don't understand about our world is that we won this energy lottery and we don't know this we don't we're energy blind we don't understand that fossil fuels are the nearest things to magical substances that we're ever going to run across and we we actually did that in previous seasons too kind of you know how how almost magic like these are?
0: Yeah. Well, um, that, I mean, you're a farmer. Sure, surely you've traded a cow for some magic beans in the past.
1: What I have done is sat on a tractor and I burned off probably four gallons of diesel yesterday.
0: Oh, so you burned four gallons of magic beans, basically. <laughs> and and saying.
1: I, but I'm sitting on this tractor doing this work, and I'm like, you know, and I'm realizing, well, an hour went by. There's a gallon. That's 500 human labor hours right there. I just, under my butt. Yeah. So, you know, I'm aware of this stuff when I'm doing it. But it's because of their magical properties that we've developed this world that's made these incredible technological advances. And now many of us live and depend upon these machines that we really don't understand. So it gets back to complexity. It, get back, it gets back to the myth of progress, these technical advances, They're incomprehensible to us, and they've gone on for generations. And so, of course, they've developed a mythology. And, of course, now, because I can sit on my butt and drive a machine, very few people need to farm. People are moving into cities, urban areas. So, of course, we've disconnected from nature. You know, there's not that many people now that have to work out in in natural-type environments to earn their livelihood. And... And so people are literally walled off in their homes, so you know this physical reality we've created actually is disconnecting us from sort of deeper realities is what I'm saying it, right
2: and what's interesting, bringing it back to sort of the the human behavior and and yeah kind of the human brain stuff, some of our behaviors that seem like they might be irrational, uh, cognitive biases, our susceptibility to conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, theory, thinking, that kind of stuff. You know, one of the things we're pointing out is that in some ways that that's old, yeah. right? It's it's an old part of us and that we need to grapple with that. And on the flip side, our current physical reality is very new. Yeah. And we need to, and we don't recognize how much we really need nature. Right. Like we evolved in nature. Right. And us being disconnected from nature is has probably a profound impact on us in ways that we have no idea.
1: Yeah, uh, we you know, we interact things. with you know kids are interacting with more of their um their their electronic devices and manipulating those and how much time are they spending manipulating things in the real world anymore? Right. So
0: you mean electric pagers, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look at you can have a career as a gamer now. I know, know?
1: <laughs> right? Right? And we and now you know we have to you know the money thing was interesting because uh, connecting money now so we have. The, our ability to actually get food and, and keep shelter is not dependent upon our skills at manipulating the real world. It's our skills of of manipulating our or fitting into our social environment right. so that we can get this social uh, construct named money, which allows us now to trade for things we need.
0: Okay, so you are bringing up a... Uh... Uh, uh, kind of an aha for me that mm-hmm. I want to share because one of the important things I think is as you go and start realizing there are these hidden drivers or you see something in the world you got to have a yeah. bit of an aha or you know it, it doesn't have to be one epiphany but you know that that would be nice when it works out so cleanly but you 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 have to come to a realization either from something you've witnessed experienced heard learned to be able to make an actual change in your life, and you bringing up the money thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is uh, oh, it's boiling up for me now. So, okay, I, I don't know if I, I'm sure I've told you guys before, but I, I when I was in college, I needed a job, summer job, just like most college kids who are trying to pay tuition. I thought you and were stuff.
2: some some hoity-toity Ivy League school kid. You didn't. You weren't like. A- working at yeah. the country club over the summer. <laughs> no,
0: I I was not a uh, uh like a legacy rich kid type oh. Ivy League. Uh. It was it was merit based. Come on, man. I uh. was, I was like a little straight-laced stack You are proof that
2: meritocracy
0: actually exists. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, I mean, I was the right uh race and gender, so Good. you Thank know, God. I, there was there was some privilege there. Uh, <laughs> no, but I I needed money to, you know, be able to pay for some stuff, and so I I, I didn't have access this is the anti country club i had i couldn't I, I knew nobody that could get me on as a caddy at the rich guy's golf club okay <laughs> so uh i ended up the best job i could find was as a uh, a landscape uh technician is that the right word uh no that's that
2: sounds like that sounds like a
0: newfangled uh, way a of landscape calling. photographer uh, you were just a landscaper yeah okay. yeah so uh and that's even fancy. Here's what we did, okay? I worked in this team where Monday morning we'd show up, we'd pick up trash for the first hour around this office park. That was like the warm-up. And then you'd spend <laughs> uh, all day mowing, uh, except the end of the day where you would do some weed whacking and backpack blowering. Oh, so this is God. why you hate blowers so oh, much. Right? Cloud of dust. Uh, you know, yeah, it's like uh, you probably could get coal miners long. It's from like your this.
2: non-flashbacks when you hear these now, right? Is that what's going <laughs> well, on?
0: Well, so there were, you know, doing this. I don't want to disparage because a lot of people love doing landscaping. In fact, I I love it as a hobby. I don't love that kind of yeah. oil-driven, mechanized, clean the office park uh, landscaping as a career. But hey, if it works for you out there, great. But it it, it wasn't good for me. Except there there was something that was nice about it, it was all that time of walking around, kind of uh, pushing equipment. Gave you time to think, okay? Mm-hmm. And so a couple of aha's came to me. I mean, one is why this came up, Jason, is what you're talking about with money. I started realizing so many people are doing jobs that they they would never have picked for themselves. Is the way I spend the bulk of my time, yeah, other uh, than just a third to of get, your life or whatever, yeah, just to but just to get this, you know, this green stuff that you can then go and hopefully do with what you want. But so many people get trapped into just doing like, oh, I'm I'm just paying rent with this. I'm not actually leading the life I want to lead. And it's just a vicious cycle. So that was one aha, which has totally changed how I look at career and work-life balance and all that stuff. The other thing that came was, uh, okay, so I told you Monday we would show up and do that. And then we would go to the next office park the next day. And, and it was just in a cycle. And the following Monday, we're back at the office Start park over. we started at. And it looks exactly the same as it did the Monday before. Yeah, you're the pushing, trash, a, pushing a rock up a hill. Oh, buddy. yeah. The trash re-spouted, sprouted <laughs> like mushrooms.
2: So, so you knew right then and there that... This myth of progress was total myth. Oh, right? but there was
0: there was so much to it. Like, wow, if we'd have let that grass grow, it probably would have been a nice meadow. Might have actually been like uh, some frogs or yeah, or, you a know.
1: flower might have been able to bloom. Right,
0: right. No, but and here's here's the best part. Like, not one person at one of these office parks ever walked on that grass or did anything in it. It was just right. seriously so they could, I think, see it out their window. It might as well have been green painted pavement. Yeah. Maybe there, maybe it's
1: maybe it's uh, like fake turf now there.
0: Yeah, 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 that would have been better. It would have would have, uh, been, would have been would have been less chemical. Fewer applied. jobs, though, man. Oh, right, right, and, and good jobs having that blower smoke in your face and yeah. pesticides. So, I mean that that whole idea of like how do we get past purposelessness in our jobs and in our economy? like, yeah. that was that was huge to me, and so. Again, kind of bringing this back, it's about finding ahas, and so I was wondering what you know. This was new for us, looking at hidden drivers and trying to think in depth about them. Did you guys come up with some ahas on this season that that mm. have stuck with you?
1: Well, something that I kind of gets to me is sort of thinking about human behavior and the social constructs we have. It sort of helped explain to me why it's so difficult for people to go as far as I'd like him to go, to make as many connections and to jump, you know, to the logical conclusions. And I know we've mentioned uh, Jeff Bezos before, where he gives this talk where he sounds like uh, Dennis Meadows, you know, of Limits to Growth. And for like 45 minutes or so, he's giving the perfect Limits to Growth talk, the the, the first or second richest guy in the world. And then he turns And it becomes just moronic immediately where he goes and you know, it's we're gonna colonize space with a trillion people.
0: Harvest the moon. Yeah.
1: And Uh, it's just you go, wait a second. You're he's citing laws of physics and you know the gravity well and overshoot and resource depletion and everything exponential growth, and he says the scarcity is a big problem. And he just can't accept it. He just can't accept
0: it. My favorite is watching a share like i i didn't actually watch you but i'm think, I was thinking in my mind when you introduced this story of a share sitting there in front of a screen going yes yes <laughs> jeff yes, yes good good yeah all right sweet no no no
1: no jeff but, it, but it's this like ability for us to live with cognitive dissonance and i think understanding the human mind and understanding that you know we can we can spend part of our time Thinking these thoughts about reality, and 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 putting these connections together, but then it, gets, it hits a wall in a sense where other parts of our mind don't allow us to then really go to the logical final so, <laughs> conclusion of this.
2: So I see that just a little differently in that, and it was very telling for Bezos because it's exactly what you said. And that was that he, he found this conclusion, you know, he, he laid out this, this challenge, right. And he arrived at a conclusion and he named it. And that conclusion was because of these limits with energy and efficiency and all this, we are going to have to ration. Yeah. And he couldn't accept it.
1: He could not accept, and it
2: wasn't that right, it right. wasn't that he had this other part of his brain that was doing these other calculations or had this like alternative set of facts. It was that his belief system was more important to him than than any
0: rational case. Right, right. Rational and rationing doesn't fit into the myth of progress. <laughs> right.
1: right. Rationalization um, does, and it yes, may be
2: right. you know because you know it's it's that old I don't know every quote is attributed. Uh, upton sinclair <laughs> no mark twain i was thinking okay. right you know the whole thing around Yeah, maybe this is upton
1: sinclair yeah
0: i'm thinking
2: the
1: uh can't get a man
2: to believe something if his job is d- is dependent right. upon the opposite or whatever it is yeah
0: yeah oh gosh it's neither of those two but i'm not going to be able to come up with who it was
2: it was jeff bezos okay, <laughs> okay. so because you know he he made all his money on this this right. idea of of progress, right, and he had and he talked about he had dreams of going to space, you know when he was a little kid, but yeah i I just it it is so important to recognize that and we suffer from this, I think, which is this sort of like well, we have the facts, we know the truth, mm-hmm. we either think if we just communicate those to people, then they'll get it, and they'll right. do the right thing, or they're idiots. Because they don't get this, right? And they're hopeless. And the truth is that that we are all locked into these um, ways of thinking and a being that are contradictory and mm-hmm. conflicting, and that facts will not win out at the end. Right. If it's if it's a race between facts and beliefs and belonging, you know, right. facts are not going to for most people are not going to. So, uh,
0: just real quick power of the internet, and uh, progress, speaking of that, I just looked up who said that quote, and it was Jar Jar Binks. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Can you do it in his uh, voice? No, actually, it was <laughs> Upton Sinclair. You were right the first time.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. I'll, give it, I'll give it to Jason. It wasn't yeah, me. don't
1: look how sausage is made, I mean. <laughs> oh.
2: um, well, so another thing, I mean, you're talking about Haas for me, and this is kind of an obvious, but I think is is something I've been kind of wrestling with a lot, just trying to think about the implications of it. And that is that all these hidden drivers actually interact with one another. And I don't want to do this like systems map kind of thing where you get dizzy with these circles and arrows and all this shit, you know. Um, But you could actually start seeing, well – this hidden driver relates to that hidden driver, relates to that hidden driver, and they amplify each other. And, and
1: in the positive feedback loops. Right.
2: And that, and that was part of the reason we wanted to talk about positive feedback loops because that amplifying feedback know, is something that is, is a hidden driver of what's happening in the world, but is also something that's playing out with these hidden drivers interacting with one another. And it makes it all the more challenging to understand the system that we're dealing with, and also all the more important to
0: understand the the system that we're dealing with. I mean, I I see your point, and I remember you talking specifically, specifically saying, oh, this hidden driver is almost like a master hidden driver because it's pushing that one. But I think that's too nuanced. And uh, what I learned is that death anxiety rules all.
2: Oh, right, okay, you're afraid it just comes of death. At death.
0: Yeah. Uh, you're, it's to it, death. That's that's why we are in a sustainability crisis. So just, just stop fearing okay. death, and it's it's the golden bullet that will solve everything. Thank God.
2: <laughs> like, oh, except we haven't solved death yet.
0: Oh, right, and... and well, let's get Ray Kurzweil on here. Maybe he can help us out with this, right? <laughs> well, and that net energy thing is still there, even if I'm totally fine with dying. All oh, right. right. Damn it. Okay, what were you saying then? <laughs> The interaction Uh,
2: (laughs) between these drivers is important. No,
0: yeah, it's huge, and and I think piggybacking on that, uh, maybe this is also obvious, but you know, we we started looking for these drivers, and let's not pretend like we got them all, right? (laughs) Right. right. I mean, there's a lot of other things out there, ways we act, social constructs. Hell, we're even stuck in one culture and one part of the world, yeah, right? Sure, I mean, right. there's stuff all over the world we're we're not aware of. So, and that's that makes it even more daunting is that there are drivers of our sustainability crisis, of our inequality crisis, of of the the kinds of problems we've been talking about that that we have not covered. And so, you know, there's uh, certainly opportunities for us and for listeners, for everybody to figure out what are some of the other things? We'll that cover them
1: are- in season twenty-two.
0: Right, right. That that that's your solo season, Jason. Jason's just going to run seasons five through twenty. When, yeah. Um
1: Well, uh, so I think we should get back to this. Is sort of what we did in our shows too. Is we had a structure where we would come back to say, "Well, what do we go from here?" Right. Well, first of all, listen to the, all the old shows again, and if you want to just get cut to the chase of what to do, usually it was the last third of the episode. We would we would. um
2: we go, channel our George Costanza. Yeah,
1: channel the George Costanza, and do the opposite. Making suggestions for both individual actions and as well as things you can do in your household and your community, maybe you know public policy, etc.
0: Yeah, and we we even when we interviewed guests, we tried to draw out of them stories and ideas that you know where where, where they were kind of trying to do the opposite or at least point out an idea that was opposing. The, the current culture, the current setup. Yeah. So uh, if, we, if we go back and listen and we find actions that we could take individually or that we could do to try to change policy, I'm thinking maybe maybe we could come up with just some of our favorites, some examples that we could we could share with listeners. And one of the ones I wanted to bring up is, you know, I've mentioned terror management theory and death anxiety in this, this episode. Yeah, Obviously, you're that clearly one, obsessed with yeah, death. Well, yeah, that, that was that, a good one. That one affected me. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I remember the conversation with Michael Hebb and, and you, Asher, had done a, a death over dinner and Found that it had a good effect. And I'm a little sad to say that I haven't done it yet, uh, mostly because of the conditions of the pandemic. It's hard to invite a group over to your house. But I'm hoping. I have so
2: many dark jokes to make about about that, right? (laughs) Right.
0: Uh, Death during dinner. Death (laughs) Death soon after dinner. Right.
2: What what better way of getting people together? The, you know, talk about death and run the risk of getting yeah. COVID. It's like
1: that Edgar Allan Poe story, right.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> right? Hey, who wants to come over to my house to die? Uh, so, but I, I, I've talked to a couple friends, and we're we're definitely up for staging this when people feel it's safe to to gather up and and do it. So I, I plan on doing that, and one of my goals is just to monitor, like, how did talking about this affect. How much I discriminate against out groups. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some actually some policy recommendations
2: as well. It wasn't just stuff that we could do as individuals that I thought were really interesting. And and I guess if I were going to say that there was like a, a major takeaway around that, it's that we just have to be like the Welsh.
1: Yeah, and that amazing story.
2: Yeah. So we're t- talking about the actually the conversation Jason you had with uh, Jane Davidson. We ended up playing. Uh, the interview that Vicky Robin did with her. Yeah, um,
1: I had technical difficulties.
2: Yeah, just talking about, you know, the the effort that the Welsh government did, kind of the first of its kind and hopefully not the last of its kind, where they passed the Wellbeing and Future Generations Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really related to when we we're talking about discounting the future, how important it is if we we're thinking about, you know, we all say that we care about our kids or whatever, but we don't actually put that into place in any of our institutions, you know, the the financial system, policy, any of that stuff. So they actually wrote that into law. Yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah you know, there's probably something to be said about the fact that, that Wales is a relatively small country that they could do that. But <laughs> well, let's,
0: let's think like the Welsh now, maybe not like the Welsh were thinking in the colonialist expansion period, right? <laughs> right, good point. <laughs> Always uh, a time component here, I suppose. Yeah. Well,
1: the uh, the interesting thing about this is that it, it kind of, you know, that act has been used to do sort of more detailed work. And one of the things that I, that I found fascinating is if you're a young person and you want to basically have a livelihood in a rural setting where you have land you can work and you can live in a lot of nations like the U.S., and and this is true in, in Wales, it's hard to do so. Like local land law doesn't allow you just to build a house in in a rural setting and start farming. There's all this sort of idea that these are industrial farms, and we don't want the countryside to be pocketed by by households. But what they've done in Wales is they said, well, if you want to start a, a, a rural household that is actually based on living on the land, securing most of your food, most of your energy, deriving your income from land-based activities, we're going to let you do it. So they're actually designing law to repopulate the Welsh countryside with people who are gonna live there lightly. And they actually have an ecological footprint target that they're all, that people have to meet. So um, I there's a there's some a really good interesting film about this week in a short eight-minute video we can put into our show notes, a pair of Welsh climatologists, for example, doing this. So these are people that have gotten really big educations, understand the climate crisis, and said, well, I'm going to go to the back to the land and farm.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting, the, the idea of uh, maybe combating or going up against laws that don't make sense for the world that we're inheriting. Yeah. I remember uh, meeting a guy named Alexander Lee, probably back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And he started a a group called Project Laundry List.
1: Hmm. Hmm. And
0: what it was about was, I think he had found some examples where people just wanted to line dry their laundry, you know, save Uh energy instead (laughs) of throwing it in a dryer. But it was against the law. Right. You're like, oh, it's an eyesore. You're not allowed to hang your laundry. So he basically started agitating to get rid of those laws and, and make it like, hey, Hanging your laundry is like a small gateway drug to sustainability, you know, like you you take this little step, you don't need a dryer, you know. Uh, magically, clothes just want to become dry as long as it isn't raining out. Yeah, yeah
1: and there's laws against uh, growing like vegetable gardens in your front yard, for example.
0: The front oh, yard has to be a lawn. Thank God, some kind those of, evil vegetable you know, gardens. There are, but there are
2: organizations that have been doing pioneering work to challenge some of this stuff. Exactly. There's a group called Sustainable Economies Law Center, uh, Janelle Orsi and others there who've directly worked there are a bunch of lawyers yeah who have directly worked to change laws around some of these things like people being able to to make and sell food from their own kitchens right. you know there's another group that was started in Texas called Project Better Block and that just started because a bunch of people wanted to basically fix up this old theater in downtown Dallas and they were trying to get a whole bunch of volunteers to come down and make a big party out of cleaning this thing up and they found out that they're like all these Ordinances on the books that kept them from having, like they wanted to set up like a bike lane and bike parking. They that to sounds
0: set up, like an illegal idea. Exactly. That we're going to have to shut down.
2: They wanted to set up like little tables out front on the sidewalk where people could sit. They actually tables. wanted to have flowers, <laughs> flowers. Like, all of these things were <laughs> against legal. certain ordinances. So what they ended up doing was like f- like going into the to the ordinances, the whatever the books of the city they they flagged all the ones that they were going to break they printed them out <laughs> and they put them on the windows of you know this building and they invited all the city council members to come down to this party they intentionally broke all the rules they posted the ordinances on the walls and then they showed all the city councilors like, these are all the things that we're breaking basically yeah. by having this party. <laughs> and and they were like the city councillors, like, Yeah, that's stupid, you're yeah, right. They, and they broke, changed them. Uh,
0: they broke yeah. the minds of the city councillors yeah. at the same time. Which is totally
2: <laughs> inspirational. A bunch of other people have done similar kinds of things.
1: Yeah. yeah. So there, there is a way to get involved in public policy, whether it's big like the like whales um, or small like that. I guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, there's a lot of do the opposites that we we covered over the season. I agree, Jason. Uh, you know, I can't remember them all here. But you can go back and listen, but maybe just a couple of uh, patterns around that. W- one of them that I think came up repeatedly for me was that death. Well, no, I wasn't going to say that this time. <laughs> But now, yeah, it's probably death. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, is that you really got to start getting more and more comfortable with a systems view of the world and trying to understand what feedback loops are happening and how that thing over there is really leading to this thing over here. But then this thing over here is, you know, it's, it's a way of perceiving the world that we don't learn in school and, you know, unless you happen to be in the right classes or get the right teacher or professor. So it's kind of on, on us as individuals to start figuring that out.
1: Yeah, and I also, the system that I, we sort of talked about a lot is the mind and one of the systems we talked about. And that is a very interesting, complex system. And so I think learning about the human mind and techniques for sort of recognizing your thoughts and where their thoughts are maybe coming from. So there's lots of good research on how the brain is organized, you know, the the different role of actually the left brain and the right brain, which we didn't go over with in the show, but it's fascinating. The ability to use techniques like meditation to think to really think about how you're thinking and recognize where your emotions are coming from and to basically make decisions about what are you going to use? I, what parts of your brain are you going to use? And, I had this
0: little um, techno fix dream. Yeah. I was wishing. Like, I don't know. When I was a kid, Radio Shack had these little fire helmets with flashing lights on top okay. of them. Yeah. And I wish uh, <laughs> uh-huh. I wish I had one of those that when my lizard brain takes over, the light <laughs> would go off and let me know. Yeah. So you're, that you're, I could I could stop and do right. what you're talking about. You got like a
1: throbbing amygdala right, right. now. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. down.
0: Throbbing amygdala. That's a great
2: name for a band. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a so, nerd band nerd. for sure. But.
1: No, I think we have to be, you know, figure out if you can be a little monk-like, I guess, in terms of staying calm in a storm, recognizing what's going on with your own brain, having empathy, and then be able to, like, have a theory of mind so you can recognize what's going on with other people, too.
0: I want to also just uh, say, following on that, that I know at times the three of us sound like we... Oh, we know what we're talking about and you know, here we are in a podcast uh, doling out uh, <laughs> expertise and advice and stuff, but this part of it was really humbling, right? I mean, trying to talk about the imperfections, let's call them, of how the human brain works, how it has evolved and how how we as humans tend to see the world. It's not like the three of us could sit here and say, well, that's them, those people out there who have these cognitive biases, whereas we're above all that. No, we, we right. I felt like I had to kind of look at myself and realize, you know, I'm just as susceptible as anybody else. You're I think, terrified of dying. I, I know that. I think my brain is <laughs> Is that why you human. keep talking about it so much? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it's, it's something that Everybody doesn't yeah. matter how smart or educated, especially how smart you think you are. Yeah, uh, you, Dunning Kruger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you, you got to deal with this just like everybody else. I,
2: I think you bring up a, a good, a really good point, Jason, and that is the idea that understanding how our minds work is actually an important task. Mm-hmm. It's something it's that you yeah. could actually work on. And, and we didn't talk about this very much, but there are also things that that people can do in terms of practices that help us have more capacity to deal with challenges. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk in psychology and therapy around this idea this concept of a window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. And somebody we know, uh, her name is Leslie Davenport talks a lot about this in the context of people dealing with their anxiety over climate change, Mm -hmm. but it applies to all kinds of things. And that is our ability to widen our window so that we can stay relatively calm and think more rationally in in situations of stress. Now, the techniques are different for different people. One of them that seems to work, and we talked about this a lot, and is a definite takeaway for me in terms of do the opposite, that we talked a lot about it, and that is getting out in nature, Mm. right? And how important that is. Um, We talked about it for a number of different episodes, and I think it's a really important, again, people's circumstances are different. Right.
0: But... Uh, you know, I, I just want to say I, I'm a guy who likes to be outside a lot, but of course with the work from home kind of stuff that we've used to organize how we uh, get our professional lives, uh, you know, get get the tasks done, I've found myself in the office a lot. And literally just a, a week ago, I was feeling crazy anxious and, you know, I, I I finally had the moment, like you're talking about, Jason, to be able to di- self-diagnose. I didn't have the Radio Shack helmet. Yeah, that they haven't invented those yet. Me, but uh, I realized, I got to go see some trees. Uh-huh. And I, I literally decided then, close the laptop down, got outside, went over to the the park, and cruised around on a little extinct volcano with a forest on it, mm-hmm. and... I felt so much better. And I think it, Honest, you know, like I said, I like to be outside, but it was really related to us talking about this as a kind of cure. It, I, I yeah. had to go out, get in nature, and it, like that, it really did shift my perspective and my mood.
1: Yeah, I think we evolved in nature, and there's this sort of, the type of stimulation it provides us is, is a normal type of stimulation that I think helps our body settle and I think it's so important that if you're ever feeling off kilter, that that may be, maybe a cure, right? And it's this really interesting dynamic in the in the mind where you both want to have sort of the um, the calming effect, right? Maybe, but you also then also want to be active in a sense of being able to use that frontal frontal cortex to maybe think through things. So you're both accepting kind of. You know the stimulation from the world and the sounds and the smells and the sight, and you're you're connected then to the real world. But what's allow you to do is it's allowed you to use that part of your mind that can actually think clearly and plan and kind of imagine well. And I think that's sort of the state of being we're gonna we need to try to get into as much as we can.
0: I don't know why, but when you said use the frontal cortex to think through things, I thought of using the frontal cortex to put nails through things like. Like using your forehead to pound uh, <laughs> a nail through the wall. <laughs> I don't know why. That's I, not a frontal cortex <laughs> decision, I don't think. Maybe it's because woodpeckers have been pounding away on my house lately. They're very active right now, yeah. I guess. Uh,
2: can, I, can we close with a challenge? Okay. Right? In a plea. Maybe it's, it's like a combo challenge plea, right? Which is...
0: <laughs> a combo challenge plea. Yeah, i mean,
2: I want to challenge our listeners and I want to make a plea to our listeners. And if you've listened to this podcast at all, you'll know why we believe this so strongly. And that is, things are going to become more and more destabilized. Mm-hmm. You know, the compounding, you know, environmental and social crises that we're facing, the craziness that we've experienced just over the last 15 months to 18 months, however long. We don't know exactly how things are going to play out in the future, but I I, it, I would Feel confident to say that there's going to be a lot more moments of crisis and surprise and uncertainty and and hardship for a lot of people, and we face this really interesting challenge and conundrum, and that is that makes it all the more important to recognize these hidden drivers and the systems at play and to challenge. To challenge those things and to work against them. But we have to recognize that the tendency for people, us included, when faced with these moments of uncertainty and challenge, will be to double down on what we're doing, double right. down on the communities that we belong to, our belief systems, trying to find comfort and security for what we know. Yeah, the
0: quote-unquote normal, right? Yeah, or the promises that that
2: are going to be made to us from politicians or whomever. And uh, and it's understandable that people are—that, one, people don't recognize these hidden drivers that much. It's understandable that people will be tempted to double down more as things get more difficult. Which means that it's really incumbent upon us, and I say this humbly, those of us who are reckoning with these things, for whatever reason, those of us who are trying to dig deeper, scratch below the surface, recognize these drivers, think about the system, that we not only find the courage to stay in that place, because we still inhabit this world, right? Like, we're not dropping out. We are still inhabiting a world where most of us are living in crazy town and are continuing to sort of go about our daily business as the world burns and, and things get worse. We have to stay in this place where we recognize those things. We're working towards something different and still engage with the rest of the world and be empathetic for those people who are not able to like live in that point of tension. Yeah. And the last thing is be welcoming. Create alternatives for those people, create a sense of community that they could belong to. It really, I was uh, struck by the story of this woman named Megan Phelps Roper. She's the granddaughter of Fred Phelps, who's the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church. Westboro Baptist Church is probably the most reprehensible, disgusting <laughs> kind of hate group that exists in some ways in, in this country. I won't tell the whole story about, about them, but she's somebody who grew up in this, this entire family grew up in this in this very closed group where their constant interactions every day were with people who re- responded with hate and animosity towards their message, which just...
1: just oh, because they're doing these, like... They're, like, going out to they're abortion ones who clinics hold up, and... Yeah,
2: signs yeah. basically saying, God hates fags. It's not my term, it's their term.
1: Right, right. right.
2: And... And that just got them more and more entrenched in their right. small community. And she talked about what she ended up leaving. Yeah, and, and she how, ended up right. leaving her mom, her right. family. And and she's talked about what it took to allow her to do that. And there are a few different things that were key. There are there moments where things kind of cracked open for her and she was able to ask questions. And she might have been somebody who's predisposed to ask questions. You know, maybe mm-hmm. not everyone is. But the key thing for her was that there was an alternative community that she could reach out to, Mm -hmm. right? So for us, and I'm guilty of this all the time, where I could could sit here in judgment and I can make fun of people who I think have absurd beliefs or doing absurd things or I vilify them like Jeff Bezos or, you know, we've talked about Nordhaus and others. We need to stay humble and empathetic and be welcoming and have an alternative community and alternative ways of being so that folks have something to turn to because if they don't have that alternative they're going to get locked in and even deeper than they are now
1: and i think that's sort of why this episode or this podcast is around is we kind of want to feel that you know i think a lot of us that are willing to dive deep into these things and ask these questions and kind of go down the rabbit hole and and have some really scary thoughts or conclusions um it's easier to do that when you know that you have others that are accepting of where you've gone and what your line of train of thought is. And so if you want other people to sort of like join you uh, in crazy town, in a sense, in terms of the crazy town worldview, then I, you know, I think you're right. You've got to be less judgmental of others who aren't already there with you. And that's that can be pretty hard because you may have felt like Many times in your life, you've been judged harshly for not believing the myth of progress, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, and guess what? You can have fun along the way, creating that community, or even just being a good community member. I mean, uh, for us, maybe that boils down to making some poop jokes and uh, and having uh, fun with this podcast. But really, trying to create the world that can work for everybody—you know, whatever small piece of that you have—it can be a ton of fun and we've heard from some listeners who are changing up what they're doing in their lives and really enjoying the experiment. So your challenge is share and your plea uh, in some ways it's more like an invitation to fun or at least it can be. I'm not trying to sugarcoat it and say there isn't going to be difficulty in the change, maybe even some pain and loss and giving up on some activities that just aren't really going to fit in with a sustainable future, but God, there's a lot of fun to be had, too. And I'm just looking forward to some of that.
1: Yeah, and what challenge isn't hard, but ultimately worth it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crazy Town.
2: Yeah, if by some miracle you actually got something out of it, please take a minute and give us a positive rating or leave a review at your preferred podcast app.
0: And thanks to all our listeners, supporters, and volunteers. And special thanks to our producer, Melody Travers. Crazy Town.
2: Crazy Town.